Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig Diel, the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal. And this week I am joined by one of my colleagues at Commonweal, Becky Menzies. Hello, Becky. How are you doing? Hi, Craig. I'm excited to be on the podcast. It's my third time now. Yeah, yeah we'll hopefully get you on even, even more frequently in the future because uh, um, you, you've always been good to talk to. Um, <laughs> so this week uh, we are going to be talking about the, well, uh, the biggest bit of political news in Scotland uh, over the past couple of weeks, uh, the election results. Um, a few weeks ago, we, we talked on the podcast about the a review of the various party manifestos leading up to the election and uh, what kind of Commonweal policies had been infiltrating Scottish politics over the, the last uh, last few years. Um, since then, we have had the election and we can now see what the, the voters have decided they want from the country. Um, and what we've got is something that looks very similar to the previous parliament, although the, the distinctions are in the differences. We have ended up with a, an SNP minority, um, just like last time, although the numbers are slightly different. Um, notably, the Green Party is up significantly. Uh, the Lib Dems are down quite significantly. Um, as I say, there is no overall majority control in the Parliament, as you would expect from a proportional voting uh, system. Um, and we are now in that limbo phase of working out, will the government go it alone again as a minority SNP, as it has done in, in previous um, uh, parliamentary sessions, or will there be a formal coalition, perhaps with the Greens? Um, for my part, and yeah, I'm, I'm, just for disclosure, uh, most folk know I am a member of the Green Party, although I'm not involved in any of these negotiations <laughs> in any way. Um, I think that a formal coalition is probably unlikely. We're, we're, we will have to wait and see what that what happens with that. But I, my my tasting of the air suggests that it will be another minority government. Um, but we'll talk about some of the implications of that later. Um, Becky, what were your overall impressions of the the election campaign as a whole, and then the the results as were announced? Yeah, I think um, we spoke a lot about this in my circles of friends and and at work about the kind of lack of excitement about <laughs> the kind of election this time round. I think a lot of that's down to the pandemic and lockdown and not the usual sort of street canvassing and events. But I think it was a, maybe a bit more of a predictable result, but it's a good one for pro-indie folk, I would say. Um, and it's also good to see a lot more diversity in the parliament, um, which I think is always a good thing, regardless if it wasn't as exciting this time round. Yeah, I mean, this, this, there were a lot of victories for diversity in this parliament. We had a, a record number of women um, elected to the par parliament. Um, still only 45%. So women are still in the minority in, in parliament. So uh, I always like to... Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quote when she was asked how many women would would be appropriate on the, the Supreme Supreme Court and she said all of them uh, because we've had all male Supreme Courts before so why should you be surprised at all female ones? Uh, exactly <laughs> um, I was I went along to Scott Women Stand and they, they call for 51% not 50-50 which I think would be a great a great number to reach yep. so maybe next time. Yep and we have other victories for diversity in the parliament as well yeah, first wheelchair user, that's um, Pam Duncan Glancy. Uh, she's a Glasgow Labour MSP. So I've actually um, met her a couple of times. She's a, an amazing um, person. So it's good to see her get in and start to shake things up a little bit and make it a bit more normalised um, representation. Yeah, and it, it's, I mean, 
I'm talking from a position of relative privilege on this. I'm definitely not the person to be delving into these issues too much. And we really should be getting folk onto the podcast who can talk about this from, from their own perspective. But it is that perspective that is, is important to have in the parliament because you need people with lived experience of issue, you know, the whole gamut of issues across um, Scottish society to really be able to tackle them. You don't want folk like me talking to people about their problems. <laughs> you, you want it to be the very opposite. Yeah, no, totally. I think I think that's it. I think sometimes we're too quick to say folk are experts because they've read a lot about stuff rather than the people yeah. that have actually lived it. Um, another one was we've got the first two women of colour in the parliament too, um, which is shocking it's taken this long, but it's great to see that that's now happened and hopefully yeah. it paves the way for more um, in the future. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's the, the symbolism of these is, is, is important as well, because every time you, you do finally break one of these barriers, it, it does send that signal to everybody else that, you know, the, the parliament is for you too. Um, and hopefully, yeah, it'd be great to see the, 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 this, this trend continue. Totally. We can hope. Um, and another good thing about this parliament was the record turnout. This was the highest turnout of, of any parliament in the de- uh, any parliamentary election in the devolution era, which was actually quite surprising given the the fairly muted tone of the uh, the campaigning, you know, the circumstances of of coronavirus, the pandemic, the lockdowns, and and everything that went with that. Um, I think a lot of people were expecting a very muted turnout. Um, but instead, the very opposite. I mean, it's still less than two thirds of people voted. So there's still that massive constituency of did not vote or sat on the sofa or, you know, went out and you know, spoiled their ballot for um, re- uh, whatever reason as well. Um, and uh, I do have to say, if, uh, I've always got a lot of respect for folk who do go out and, and do think, right, no one on this, this ballot paper represents me. Therefore, I have turned out and I will spoil the ballot. Uh, I yeah. think that's always a good exercise in democracy. Um, but for the folk who, who, who did turn out, this, it's, no matter who you voted for, um, you know, it, it's always better to get more people out to get that, that greater expression of democracy because it, you do get that wider representation of what the people of the nation want rather than just a small segment of the people. Yeah, I think it's, I think I was really surprised that the voter turnout, I think, because we had all predicted it to be so low because of coronavirus. But I think it probably just speaks of the frustration folk have felt and people maybe wanting to have their voice heard after a year that's been so difficult for most people. Um, And I think that, yeah, I guess in in Scotland and England, they didn't see as high a turnout, whereas we've seen a higher turnout here, which maybe speaks to people wanting their voice heard on specific issues such as independence um, and kind of having change in Scotland. Yeah. So maybe we can talk about the the, the actual parties themselves. So we did have that rise in the green vote um, and the green and, and the number of green MSPs. They have risen to eight. Narrowly missed out on getting ten. Uh, they, they, they were just a few hundred votes away from from getting a, a second MSP in Glasgow and getting an MSP in, in my region in the south of Scotland. I think the margin was even tighter there. Um, so again, from, you know, with my, my, my Green Party hat on, I'm a bit disappointed at that, but uh, also I, I know the candidates and I know they would have been a really good addition to the parliament. Um, I, I do uh, remember talking to you, Becky, a wee while ago about some of the the 
the, the green energy in some parts of Glasgow, especially south south side of Glasgow, uh, and and that was borne out in the results. Uh, the the green vote in south side almost hit twenty percent, which is incredible. Yeah. I know, I think um, living in the south side, I, it was nice to see the amount of green posters on people's windows. It, it did seem like, and well, from walking around, they were the only party I really seen out in the streets a lot with their kind of their grassroots activists. And I think it's really, it's really exciting to see more folk voting green. Um, I think as a young person, um, it's, uh, they're a party that I can identify a lot with. Um, so it's really good to see that folk use their votes for them. And mm. It's a shame they did. They just missed out. Um, I do feel for the candidates as well. They were, they would have been a really good addition to the parliament. But it's great to see they've got eight now, um, to add to the pro indie majority side of things. Yeah. yeah, of course. Just again for for uh, proprietary reasons, Commonweal doesn't endorse any particular party. We will talk to any party who'll who'll listen to to our policies. So it, it's, um, you know, there are there. Are, some excellent candidates in the other parties as well. And we, we do look forward to engaging with, um, especially those on the left, on, on in, in the SNP, in the Greens, in Labour. Uh, and yeah, we've even worked with the Lib Dems on occasion as well. Um, and this was actually something that I, I, I did talk about in the previous um, election episode in the podcast, that there's a massive cross-cut of Commonwealth policies threading through a lot of these parties. Um, so... Folk will know that Commonweal, amongst others in Scotland, have been campaigning heavily for a universal basic income in Scotland. All of the parties in the Parliament, except for the Conservatives, now support universal basic income. Um, so the, there's there are barriers to its implementation, and, and the parties are now looking at other ways of, of working around um, those barriers. But for a policy that 10 years ago people would laugh at, you now have a super majority in parliament to pass it it's incredible to see um yeah it was actually i think that's actually what is a, it shows that people actually the policies on the left of the left parties regardless of their stance on constitutional issues they're yeah. very much the same and they all have similar policies and they all want to see similar things implemented which i think is an amazing thing for people of scotland um, especially for kind of social justice issues and things like that i think it's, there's a lot of really important policies that we now need to see if they're going to get implemented. Yeah, and this is where I think a minority government actually works to Scotland's advantage. I was, did I say it? I was, I was almost dreading a majority government when the polls were saying that. Um, not because I'm against every single SNP policy. Um, there are some, again, they're, they're pushing some really good ones. But yes, there are some that I'll be fighting against, but there are some really good ones in there. It's just that with a majority government, I always get the feeling that that policies get passed based on party whip loyalty rather than actually discussing them and debating them. Now, one and, and this potentially would be the case if there was a formal coalition as well, that... We, if we don't have a, a majority or a coalition, if we do have a minority government, the parliament does need to debate these policies. It does need to look for co for ad hoc coalitions on the issues. And hopefully, again, with this broad cross-cut of some fairly radical policies over several parties, you can see there's, there's avenues for agreement. I mean, we could end up with a, a, a party... A, parliament that's not just producing good policy but making sure the policy is good before it's passed it's, it's well thought out and well debated yeah i think that's super important i think you know when there was talk of will they get a majority the scottish parliament was set up so that no one party could have <laughs> full control and i think that's 
the kind of fact that that hasn't happened is a good thing for democracy. And like you said, for other parties to properly debate these issues and to push for maybe more radical ones as well. Hmm. So I guess another question that will be asked is, uh, if we look at the parliament, then um, I did say things look very similar to the, 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 the previous parliament. One of the big similarities is the, the, the actual parties that are involved are all the same. So we, we haven't had any parties leave Parliament. We haven't had any come in, despite uh, the efforts of several insurgents. <laughs> Becky, how do you feel about the ALPA party? And, and, and what did they, in your opinion, bring to the campaign? And, and what do you think the reasons were for not quite hitting that threshold of, of, of election? Yeah, I think, I guess it's a lesson in starting a party six weeks before an election. <laughs> you shouldn't do it. <laughs> you need, you know, time to kind of build that and build the support and, I guess there's personal, I have personal um, beliefs about them, but I think that, I, I think it shows that, you know, the parties that are there, the, the fact that they didn't get the kind of, maybe the response they'd hoped kind of shows that it's not the best idea to do that. Um, but I did get questions about independence talked about, however, mm. I don't think necessarily, I don't necessarily think we needed another party to talk about independence. I think that it's now time for the indie movement to sort of reunite and move on from this sort of, I, I don't know how to word it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the same place myself that to get almost 2% of the vote based on a party that's absolutely brand new. And, you know, we have seen, we have seen new parties appear in previous elections that didn't even make it to, to, to that um, and we've seen parties that have been, you know, small parties that have been around for years in Scotland that, you know, on average get hundreds to a couple of thousand votes and, and barely make it to um, the, the first percentile point. Um, so in that respect, probably not the, 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 the worst result for an absolutely brand new party, but it did not meet the threshold for election. And yeah, I'm kind of in that same position of if you're wanting to start a new party, it is a project for multiple years, not not weeks or months. Um, that said, um, the, you know, I don't think the Alba Party is going to disappear overnight, but simply because Scotland now does have uh, councillors and MPs who are members of the party, albeit through defection rather than election. Um, so, you know, they do have somewhere to build on. If they do want to continue as a party and do want to continue contributing to the Scottish political debate, then there is there is a presence there that they can build on should they choose to. Um, but as it is, yes, we have ended up with a parliament that is um, made up of the same parties as we had last time. So these are the ones that we'll be mainly talking about over the next several years, especially when talking about Scottish um, politics and the challenges for that parliament. So where do you think we need to go? What's the big, what's the... the the next step now that we've sort uh, once we've sorted out the government got all the ministers in place and the job starts yeah i think it's um i think it's important a lot of the kind of discussions i've seen in the news and other things is talking about recovery not referendum and we've spoke about this before that actually scottish politics is paralyzed at the minute um and i think that hopefully the government comes out with a clear sort of plan um but the focus is like we i think the scotland can only move on if we have constitutional mm debate we need to kind of everybody needs to sort of have their say and we are at a point now where 
we need a credible plan from the SNP on how to do that. But then we also need to think about how are we going to recover from the pandemic? Are they going to implement the kind of policies, especially things like National Care Service? And then we have COP26 and the ever looming climate crisis yeah. hasn't gone anywhere despite, you know, the, the pandemic and whatever um, else has been going on. So that's some of the things that they need to be tackled now. <laughs> um, yeah. we, we can't really wait anymore. So I think they're the big issues that need to be spoken about. Yeah, and it's a thing that we've we've often talked about here at Cobbin Wheel on our uh, on programs like our Resilient Scotland plan that points out that the recovery from COVID and the ability to tackle the the climate emergency these are because of just because of the timescales we've only got nine years left to to really start making inroads into the climate emergency the recovery from COVID has to be the solution to the climate emergency and as part of that you know Scotland if it wants to do it you know, alone or at least do it on a timescale that's different from the UK government, we need the tools to do it. We can go so far, we can certainly spend the, this parliament doing everything we can within the powers of devolution and pushing the boundaries of devolution to their absolute breaking point limit. But at some point, we will have to say to the Scottish people that we can go this far, but no further. Either we become independent and we finish the job or we do not become independent and we hand the job over to Boris Johnson to finish. Yeah, it doesn't fill me with <laughs> excitement. <laughs> but yeah, you, I, you I think you don't trust right. him. To, you don't trust him to bring in the the the, the shining green future for Scotland. <laughs> I don't think I do. No. <laughs> no, because it, 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 I think this is going to be part of the backdrop as well, especially at UK politics. We saw the Queen's speech yesterday um, with the UK government embarking on quite a powerful attack against democracy bringing in restrictions on voting um and you know really starting to bed in its, its long-held attack on on devolution and, and decentralization in scotland by controlling the purse strings of where investment goes yeah i think it's the voter id really really scares me and it's it's as everybody knows it's going to target people in low incomes and disadvantaged voters anyway um it's expensive to have id you know yeah. um, not everybody has a passport or a driver's license so yeah it's a very big power move to <laughs> to kind of thwart democracy in my opinion so i think yeah it shows the how different scotland and westminster um are in terms of the policies we want to implement hopefully yeah, and with something that, that I've talked about in uh, in recent weeks and months is the 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 Westminster approach to investment, which really does look as if it's targeting again party loyalty rather than economic needs. So whoever can stand up and wave the Tory flag the the hardest can get pots of money dangled in front of them, uh, or it will be based around. Boris Johnson's next biggest infrastructure project. Um, where can he build a bridge or a tunnel to next? <laughs> yeah, it was interesting to see that we're going to build a bridge to Ireland. <laughs> I don't think we are. <laughs> For a start, it's what do you do once it's there? <laughs> the, the, uh, also, does that mean more car traffic? We need less climate emergency. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're going to cycle it. Maybe that's what the, the next campaign will be. I don't think my legs could take that. <laughs> so, um, so what's what's the, the, the first thing we, we really should be doing in the parliament, uh, do you think? I think, um, I guess I am of the opinion that right now... Uh, 
it should be focused on recovery and we should be doing everything we can under devolution to kind of support the people that need it most out of the pandemic. Um, but I do think that we also need, um, once the government, whatever, whatever way it's going to look, we do need to resolve the constitutional debate mm. because, as I said before, Scotland is paralysed at the minute and I think that we need to start building a positive case for independence and showing that our recovery out of this pandemic we need those powers um but i think things like that were promised like national care service and those kind of things they need to, we need to start seeing those things implemented um i don't know about you yeah i've been involved the, the the big focus for me in the, the the next few months will be the national care service um again it's one of these policies that has a broad support over the parliament uh, the snp uh, the greens and labor are very much for it um the lib dems and tories are against it um, so it's not universal, but it's um, it is something that needs to be done right. And the three parties that are for it have very divergent views of what that care service should look like, including to what extent should it be publicly owned. Um, <laughs> which, if you think about uh, the the way the NHS is right now, if you were to to suggest. Um, building a, a, a network of private hospitals and calling it the NHS, it wouldn't be the NHS as we know it today. So uh, some of the proposals that have been put forward, while they might be called a national care service, they, they don't look as if they would be a national care service. So that's that's going to be one of my focuses is, is to really campaign on that. And I've been working with Commonweal's Care Reform Group to, um, to come up with a, a blueprint of what we think a national care service should look like. Um, so it'll be really exciting to start presenting that work when it's ready. We've already published several reports on it, but um, it'll, it'll all be drawn together over the next several weeks. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's such an important piece of work, and it's really important that we push for a publicly owned and <laughs> action, not just in name. Um, another thing, actually, I know that this week is Living Rents um, Week of Action against um, evictions because the ban on evictions is coming to an end. Um, <sighs> On the 17th of May, I think it is. Um, so I think actually one of the first acts as a private tenant, um, it would be to see kind of the, you know, we've always had the talks of rent controls um, and the fact that these bans and evictions are coming. Um, I know that a lot of landlords did try to evict people despite the despite it being illegal. So I think that's a really, really big um, worry that's coming up now and something that the parliament needs to act on to ensure that no one is, um, evicted and left without a home um, in the next couple of weeks, which is just scary to think that that's coming to an end when people are still on furlough and not everyone is back. It's not back to normal. Um, yeah. Quotation marks. Yeah, and even even um, once once it is, then all those problems you alluded to there over over rent rises and and you know the basic power imbalance between tenants and landlords, uh, they all still need to be addressed properly. Um, it was interesting to see in the SNP manifesto they're finally, finally admitting that rent pressure zones weren't working and would have to be uh, reformulated, although they're not going as far as saying that we need rent controls. So that's another thing that Commonweal is going to be working uh, working with Living Rent. We have a really good relationship with Living Rent on this, so we will surely be working with them to try and um, bring in a proper system of rent controls and then go from there to a to a complete overhaul of housing to make sure these problems don't happen again. Absolutely. I think um, as a young person who's privately rented for a long time now, um, I don't even like to think about the amount of money I've paid towards yeah. private landlords. So, yeah, I hope that we do see some real action on it, not just words. Yeah. So 
that's actually for just to, to bring everything back to the parliament and bring everything to the, the end of this this podcast episode. This is another encouraging part of, of the probably being a minority government is that, again, because those policies have to be debated, have to be discussed, um, it does give folk like Commonweal, folk like other uh, lobby groups like Living Rent, the chance to engage with politicians on these issues and to uh, and, and to get these policies put forward into the, the, the public eye and in front of the parliament. Um, and, and that way that politicians can potentially make up their own mind on what they want to support. Totally. I think, yeah, that is, yeah having a minority government isn't a bad thing, despite what <laughs> some mainstream media are trying to say recently I think it's it could be an exciting time and there's a lot of work to do um so I think it's a good time for us to be there to pressure um the government to do that absolutely and just to round off the podcast uh thank you Becky for coming on I'm sure we will have you back on in, in future episodes and to folk who are listening if you want to get involved if you want to help us with these campaigns uh, as we're lobbying the new government uh, and the, the new parliament uh please visit our website there'll be uh, places where you can sign up as a volunteer I'll link to them below in the description of this podcast if you want to help us out with a donation uh, because it's folk like yourselves donating £5 or £10 a month that, that really keep Commonweal going that allows us to develop these policies that are now becoming extremely popular through Scotland and that allows us to campaign on them to make them not just pieces of paper but actually bring them to reality so with that you'll all hear back from us next week